Hello, you're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast for Christadelphians and those seeking the truth of the gospel message. Our podcast at the moment is Christ's Return, the solution for our troubled world. The podcast is presented by our brother Jonathan Pearson, apologies, uh, who meets with the Christadelphians in the Tea Tree Gully Ecclesia in Australia. And in the podcast, he looks at the problems facing the world, including terrorism, with a background of the rise of the Taliban, highlighting the fact that the only solution to these problems, to the world's problems in general, as being the return of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the earth to set up God's kingdom. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, It's about 50, 52 minutes long. Um, so until next time, please leave us any comments or questions or, or just send us a message. We love to receive them. Um, and thank you for listening. God bless. Nobody really needs to tell you that we live in a troubled world. 20 years ago, the United States of America were waking up to a different world. It was a world shattered by tragedy. It was the day after 9-11. And on that day, President George W. Bush was reading to a group of schoolchildren in Florida when a Secret Service agent advised him that a plane had just hit the World Trade Center. The Twin Towers, icons of New York City's of city, and symbols of freedom and prosperity fell within two hours. And shortly afterwards, the Pentagon, the headquarters of the US Department of Defense, was hit by a third plane. And when you look at the screen, it's hard to know which of those photos is the worst. Or maybe it's one of the thousands of images of little children looking for dad or the heartbroken wife left behind, or the grieving colleague watching on. And shockwaves of these events reverberated around the world. Never had such attacks been seen. No longer was America invincible. Never again would the world travel be the same the war on terror had begun. And that war would commence where the terror had originated, in the Taliban-controlled country of Afghanistan. Now, by no means is terrorism the only, or necessarily, the greatest problem facing this world. But it is certainly one of them. And with the recent departure of the United States from the country of Afghanistan, the Taliban took only a few short weeks to conquer Afghanistan. An alarmist sprung over this news as individuals and countries warn of a heightened risk of terror with what may prove to be a melting pot for terrorists under the control of the Taliban. And the British Security Service, the MI5, warned that the risk of another 9-11-style terrorist attack has been hauling the West's withdrawal from Afghanistan. There was no doubt, they say, that events in this country will boost and will hearten and and embolden terrorists, giving them a morale boost to potential threat uh, terrorists in Britain or elsewhere, but there's also a concern that they will be able to regroup and plot more sophisticated attacks of the sort that we faced in 9-11 and the years thereafter. You see, people are worried about the situ- situation in Afghanistan. They're very worried. And so this evening, we're going to begin there by spending a few short minutes looking at the Taliban who they were, who they are, sorry, where they came from, 
what their purpose is, and why the United States kicked them out of Afghanistan in the first place. And this will hopefully help us understand a little better what they might do now that they've returned to power. We're then going to turn our attention to look more broadly at the host of problems facing mankind before arriving at the key part of our evening together, which is the solution presented many centuries ago in the Word of God. Well, Afghanistan's story started long before the terrifying events of 9-11. In the late 1970s, Afghanistan was a relatively stable landlocked country ruled over by a king. The country was comprised of many different ethnic tribes, which, despite their long history of aggression and infighting, were largely held together under the rule of King Zahir Shah for 40 years. Now, due to its location bordering so many different countries and situate on the ancient Silk Road, Afghanistan has a long history of being conquered by various world rulers. In the late 1800s, Arab conquerors had brought Islam to Afghanistan, where it took root and flourished, so that today the country is mainly, in fact, it's 99% Muslim. Well, the rise of communism in the late 1900s made its mark upon Afghanistan when, in, 19, in the 1970s, a communist party arose and ousted the king in 1973. Six years later, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, dragging the country into a 10-year-long internal struggle against the occupying Soviet forces. Now, during these years, a little group of 16 extreme Islamists, led by a Saudi Arabian by the name of Osama bin Laden, formed a small group within Afghanistan, and their purpose was to fight holy war, which they call jihad, against the Soviet army. They named their group the base, or the foundation, which in Arabic is al-Qaeda. Their objective being to transform Afghanistan into the base for Islam, a pure nation governed entirely by Islam. But the Afghans were not the only ones who disliked the Soviet invasion. The United States joined forces with the local Afghan tribes, and in 1989, 10 years after the Soviets had occupied Afghanistan, the country once again received independence with the withdrawal of 100,000 Soviet troops. All that remained now was a fragile government left in place by the Soviets. But it wasn't long before that government was overtaken by a loosely connected group of warring tribes placing their own president in power. But with little coherence amongst the Afghan forces, the time was now ripe for the rise of a united, powerful militia to take control. And it came in the form of the Taliban. The Taliban arose as a strict religious group out of the largest of the Afghan tribes, the Pashtu. They were generally accepted amongst the Afghan people because they brought national peace. They upheld strict Islamic values. They cracked down on, on crime and they brought stability to a war-torn land but they went too far. Under the Taliban rule, women were required to be fully veiled and were not allowed to venture outdoors alone. Many of their other freedoms were greatly curtailed. And also, beneath the shelter of the Taliban's strong Islamic persuasion, the extremist group Al-Qaeda were permitted to take root and flourish. Al-Qaeda first attacked a couple of American embassies down in Africa in 1988. They might, you might say they were just testing the waters. Well, President Clinton's response was to send a couple of missiles back into Afghanistan. The US then demanded that the Taliban extradite bin Laden for trial. Well, the Taliban refused. Hiding away in Afghanistan, 
A complicated sequence of events ensued over the next three years. 20 terrorists underwent extensive training and an intricate plot was hatched in which the results of which were seen in the shocking events on September the 11th, 2001. Three out of the four hijacked planes made contact with their, with their targets. In all, about 3,000 people lost their lives. The world watched in horror as the Twin Towers, the tallest in their inception, fell to their ruin, and with them, the American dream of a perfect world. But for America, not all was lost in the events of 9-11. In the wake of the attacks, George W. Bush made a speech to America that would go down in history. During that speech, he told the nation, we will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed the crimes, Al-Qaeda, and those who harbour them, which was the Taliban. And so within a month, the US commenced their invasion into Afghanistan. And by December of that year, the Taliban had been conquered. That was 2001. Well, 20 years later, we see the Taliban once more in power. The news is filled with questions and opinions about how they're going to act now that America and the Allied forces have pulled out. Many criticise the, the original invasion, whilst others fear that the world has finally relinquished control of a dangerous hideout for terrorist organisations. And perhaps only time will tell whether this war-torn country of Afghanistan will once more become the training ground for tomorrow's nightmare. But you can see why the world is worried. But that's all very interesting. I mean, that's the world at large. You might say that it's unfortunate for Afghanistan and for the US, but that doesn't happen in Australia, does it? I mean, Australia hasn't been affected in quite a, the same way as the US, certainly not to this point in time. None of the 20 or so terrorist attacks in Australia have approached anything like the severity, the publicity or the scope of the 9-11 attacks. In fact, when we look around the globe, we find that Australia is actually one of the safest countries to live in. And it's often regarded as the most desirable of places to live. According to one study published by the BBC, Australians are on average the richest people in the world. It has been listed as the second best country in which to be born by the BBC. Melbourne, Sydney, Perth and Adelaide have all featured in the top 10 of the most livable cities as rated by The Economist. Australia boasts the eighth, uh, the eighth highest life expectancy at almost 84 years of age, according to Worldometer. The average wage in Australia has topped $90,000 compared with $70,000 Australian dollars in the US and far, far less in many other countries of the world. And despite its glitches at times, Australia has an outstanding health system. And then only in the last couple of years, we've seen the incredible amount of economic support that we've enjoyed here as a nation, with the dishing out of JobKeeper and other support packages throughout the pandemic. Australia really is one of the best places on earth to live. You know, it's been described as the lucky country. Well then, what is it really like to live in the lucky country? What's it like for the average citizen of Australia? One in ten people in Australia have depression, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. One in five suffer from some sort of mental health condition. Over the past 40 years, the rate of marriages for the average adult has decreased from 80% down to 60%, indicating that all around us we see a general erosion of the family unit. One relationship counselling website 
estimates that around 70% of marriages in Australia experience or suffer from an affair at some point during the lives of those two people. One of every two women in Australia have reported some sort of sexual harassment. Only last week, a two-day conference was held, a national summit on women's safety. I mean, why is this needed if violence against women and children is not a major, major issue affecting thousands of people in our country? For half of Australia at the moment, living in the lucky country means experiencing two months of lockdown, often with alcohol addiction and domestic violence compounding the situation. Some experience problems paying their weekly rent, others with paying their home loan, and then there's all of the other life stresses on top of that. And then you can add to that all of the public issues that face us here in Australia. There's the economic instability, which is compounded with, uh, as COVID undermines public trust and confidence. There's social inequality. You know, I work out in the northern suburbs and the, the lives that some people live are terrible. I watch school children get dropped to work, got, uh, dropped to school, sorry, and they have yelling matches with dad or mum or whoever drops them off in the car park. I then see students bullied at playtime and lunchtime whilst teachers get to just have their eyes glued to their phones. Then I see young people loitering around the shopping centre, smoking whatever they can get their hands on. A smile is really quite a rare commodity in some people's lives. And then there's the ever-present risk of, nat of natural disasters. The recent bushfires, which destroyed thousands of homes, and then floods, which affected the same people. And then there's the crime syndicates, which have been broken up, broken up across this country with things like Operation Ironside. And next minute we hear the police chief of staff tell us that, well, we've cleaned up that lot only for another to fill the void. And then we look globally. You know, we've seen the world stop in the 21st century because of a tiny little virus. Never before have we seen such confusion about a basic public health initiative. Some authorities, with authorities saying, you know, you should take it, take the vaccine for your safety, and both left and right-wing groups saying, don't touch it, you shouldn't trust it. If I was to say to you five years ago that a pandemic would all but stop the globe in a few years' time, you'd have looked at me as if I was crazy. But not now, because we've seen it happen. And then there's a the potential for engineered pandemics. Nuclear war, you know, countries like Iran are developing nuclear capability. Cyber warfare, or even world war. Just look around, there's constant moral decline. There's the global warming saga that continues. America enters retirement as the world's policeman. Afghanistan, as we've seen, is now free a free country for terrorists. China pushes its borders. And Australia has recently bolstered its military spending. What a long list of problems that is. They span all levels of society, all types of people, and they embrace a very wide range of issues. But you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, but are they all really that serious? I mean, are all these dire threats actually going to happen? Are they relevant to me? Well, there's a group of people who have put in an enormous amount of effort to research and think about exactly that question. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is a group of scientists set up over 75 years ago shortly after the creation of the atomic bomb. Many of these scientists were involved in developing the bomb itself. But it didn't take them long to realise that, well, we know where all of this is headed. For the first time, 
Humanity now possessed the power to destroy itself. And nations find it hard to hate each other on the one hand and hold a nuclear bomb on the other. And so they developed what they've described as the doomsday clock, a symbolic clock whose hands would move towards or away from midnight, depending on how close they believe we are to eradicating our own species. And the editor of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists writes, the clock has become a universally recognised indicator of the, of the world's vulnerability to catastrophe, from nuclear weapons or climate change or from other technologies that are being developed by mankind. Well, on the 23rd of January 2020, the Bulletin saw fit to move the doomsday clock forwards to only 100 seconds to midnight, signalling that, as far as this group of scientists can see, we are closer than ever before in the 75 years of their global analysis to an existential threat becoming a reality. And this year, in 2021, they left it there. The risks haven't changed. And Wikipedia, in summing up the catastrophic risks facing our globe, says, humanity is currently facing a time of perils, a uniquely dangerous period in human history where it is subject to unprecedented levels of risk. And you know, to the student of God's word, there's nothing strange about that at all. The Bible talks about such a time. In fact, it predicted it thousands of years ago, right back in a prophecy given by the man Daniel in the Old Testament. He writes, There shall be a time of trouble such as never was, since there was a nation even to that time. And if that was where the Bible left it, then we would be a miserable lot of people. In fact, I'd go so far as to say we would be a miserable world. Because no matter how hard we try, we just can't solve the world's problems. And perhaps the, the US-Afghanistan example is a witness to that. But thankfully, that's not where the Bible leaves it. As our title tonight suggests, the Bible presents a certain hope. A hope beyond all the problems that the world faces. A solution to all of its troubles. The solution, as we'll see shortly, lies in the coming of a man named Jesus Christ. The Bible portrays him as the only person in history to be born the Son of God. It tells of his birth and the time that he spent here on earth and then of the way in which he was killed and buried. But then he was miraculously resurrected by God and taken up into heaven where he now sits at God's right hand. The Bible then informs us that he will come back to the earth and that when he comes, he's going to entirely change this globe to be a better place. There's many, many prophecies in the Bible of Jesus Christ's return and some of them indicate that it is going to happen in the very near future. So let's then take a look at this man, Jesus Christ, to see why he came in the first place and how his return is going to solve all of these problems that we've talked about this evening. The second half of the Bible, the New Testament, is essentially about this man, Jesus Christ. We're told that he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that God is coming, that God is going to send his kingdom to this earth. In fact, very early on in his three and a half years teaching the nation of Israel, Jesus gave a speech to his disciples, which is recorded in the book of Matthew in chapters five to seven. And in that speech, he gave a very well-known prayer, which is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Now, you may be aware that in that prayer, Jesus taught them to pray to God, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. So one of the core elements of Jesus' teaching and something that he wanted his followers to constantly look forwards to was this coming kingdom of God. You may also be aware that this prayer is still recited at the start of Parliament sessions in the Australian Parliament today. So when the politicians pray, thy kingdom come, what are they actually talking about? When Jesus taught about the kingdom, what did he mean? Where will it be? Who's going to be the king? When will it be set up? How long will it last? And how is it good news that answers all of the world's problems? Well, to identify answers to some of these questions, we're now going to skip across three and a half years of New Testament history to the end of Jesus' time here on this earth. After three and a half years of teaching the Jewish nation, they murdered him as though he were a criminal. But God knew that Jesus had never done anything wrong, and so he raised him from the dead, and in the book of Acts and chapter 1, we find him standing on a mountain to the, just to the east of Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel. Well, now that he was alive, Jesus' followers asked him, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again that kingdom to Israel? Well, Jesus replied, No, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which God, his Father, has put in his own power. Instead, he commissioned his followers to go and to tell everyone about the good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the kingdom of God that he would one day come back and set up on earth. When he'd finished talking to his disciples, he was then taken by God up into heaven whilst they stood watching. And they, of course, in shock, stood looking up into heaven and two angels came and stood in front of them and they said these very important words. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So the eleven men standing near Jerusalem are told, don't worry, he's coming back. In fact, Jesus is going to come back in just the same way that you saw him go just now. So the Bible very clearly tells us that Jesus Christ is coming back in the same way that he left 2,000 years ago. Well, when he comes, what's he going to do? We don't have to look very far in the New Testament story to find the answer. As you can imagine, Jesus' followers, who have just been shattered by his death and then witnessed him raised back to life and ascend to heaven, they couldn't stop telling people about this good news. And so they went out to spread it around the country. And the remainder of the New Testament book of Acts tells of the way these men journeyed throughout the entire Roman Empire to share the good news of Jesus' resurrection and the kingdom that he'll bring. Now, one of these men, a man named named Peter, who was a follower of Jesus, gave many speeches about Jesus' resurrection throughout the book of Acts. And in one of those speeches, he tells us that God is going to send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. Now that time of restitution of all things is the kingdom of God, when all the problems and all the troubles of this life are going to be healed. So Jesus Christ would stay in heaven, says Peter in Acts chapter 3, until he comes back to set up God's kingdom. He also tells us that all the prophets have spoken of this coming kingdom of God. Well, the prophets here were the prophets back in the Old Testament of the Bible. They prophesied to the nation of Israel. And many of these prophets wrote entire books which were named after them. So now we can go back to any of these Old Testament prophets to find out about Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he's going to set up. So I'm now going to give you about 10 quotes from the Bible that summarise 
what this kingdom is going to be like. And as we go, you will no doubt see the way in which the return of Jesus Christ will address the startling array of problems that are facing the world at the current time. Well, the first and most pressing issue is the corrupt and divided governance that lead this world. And so to begin with, we're going to go back to a prophet who spoke in Old Testament times and who was given amazing visions and insights into world empires that would rise and fall. This prophet, the prophet Daniel, has a most fascinating revelation. After speaking of various world empires that would come and go, he writes that in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. It will never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, there's an awful lot in that verse. In fact, it really sums up the entire purpose, the entire process, sorry, of how God is going to set up his kingdom. Firstly, we note that it's in the days of these kings. What kings are they? If you were to go back earlier in the chapter, in verse 28, we learn that they are the kings or rulers of the latter days. These events are things which would occur in the latter days or the last days. Well, when's that? The latter days is a prophetic term for the times just before Jesus Christ returns. And there's many other Bible prophecies which show that this is a reference to our times. So what's going to happen in the latter days? Well, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. This is God's kingdom, which of course is the very same one that Jesus Christ was uh, announcing 2,000 years ago. And it will break in pieces and consume all other kingdoms. So all the governments, all of the, the kingdoms of this world are going to be conquered and replaced by God's kingdom when it comes. And lastly we, lastly, we learn that it shall stand forever. The kingdom of God, unlike the current kingdoms and governments of mankind, is never going to fall. It will last forever. Now, kingdom perhaps is a little less familiar to us here in Australia, but it essentially consists of a king and the territory or the dominion over which he rules. So our next question then is, who is this king? Well, when Jesus Christ was born, his mother Mary was told by a messenger from God, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. He'll be the Son of God. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob, uh, the house of Jacob, sorry, forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So this little boy that Mary would have would be named Jesus and would be called the Son of God. Jesus was to be a king. Now notice that the kingdom over which he would reign at the end of the verse was to last forever. She's specifically told, there shall be no end. But in Daniel chapter 2, we were told that the kingdom there would last forever. So again, this is the very same kingdom that God referred to back in the book of Daniel. As you may have gathered by now, the kingdom of God is a major theme throughout the whole of the Bible because it's the great hope that God has set before all of those who love and obey him. Well, in Luke chapter 1, we're told that Jesus would sit on the throne of his father David. Now, David was perhaps the greatest king that Israel ever saw. He reigned over the nation of Israel from the city of Jerusalem. And it's from that same city, Jerusalem, that Jesus Christ is going to reign over the entire world in the future. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, speaks of this time when Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. He says it will come to pass in the last days, which you'll recall is that period of time when God sets up his kingdom, 
that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to reign from the city of Jerusalem. He'll build a temple, a house of worship for God, where all nations will come to worship. And if we keep reading in this prophecy of Isaiah, we discover another remarkable feature of God's kingdom. In verse 4, we read that Jesus Christ will judge among the nations. He will rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So ancient weapons of war are going to be made into ancient instruments of agriculture. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So, so much for the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. In fact, for wars in general, there will be no more war. There won't be any more terror. There won't be any more bloodshed. Jesus Christ is going to conquer all of his enemies and bring a time of peace and rest. So we know by now that God's going to set up a worldwide kingdom. It'll be centred in Jerusalem. His son will reign as king and he'll bring global peace. But what will it be like to live in that kingdom? What type of people are going to be there? Well, earlier this evening, we referred to that first great speech that Jesus Christ gave in Matthew chapter 5. And he opens that speech with eight blessings on his followers. And these blessings give a lot of insight into the type of people who are going to live and be given a place in God's kingdom. So Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. Verse 4, blessed are they that mourn. You know, they're not reckless party animals, they're sober. Blessed are the meek, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, the people who are merciful, they live a pure life, they always do what they can to make peace, and they sometimes even suffer for what they believe in God. And notice what this group of people are promised. Well, they're promised a place in God's kingdom. They'll inherit the earth, we're told. They'll be comforted by God. Their problems of life will be fixed. And they'll become a part of God's family. Well, what sort of people won't be there? One of the most prolific writers of the New Testament, a man by the name of Paul, wrote to the believers in central Turkey about a different about some very different types of people. People who just do whatever they want, whatever their bodies feel like doing. He says that the works of the flesh are clearly revealed, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lustfulness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, fightings, Jealousies, angers, rivalries, divisions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and things like these. And then he says that the people who do this sort of thing will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you probably look at that list and think, that's a very interesting list for this world. I mean, nowadays it's normal to live together before marriage. But the Bible here calls that fornication and says that if you keep doing it, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. But now have a look at that list again. And think about those problems of society that we were looking at earlier. There won't be any adulterers in the kingdom of God. 
Affairs in marriage will be a thing of the past. No hurt other halves. No children confused about who's their parents or step-parents and all of the instability that that brings. We're not going to have people filled with envy and hatred. There won't be any murderers in God's kingdom. There won't be any drunken parties. It'll all be gone. It'll be replaced by kind, caring and godly people. Just imagine if Australia was like that. Imagine a world like that. Stable, happy families. Contented, sober inhabitants. You might wonder how on earth Jesus Christ will achieve such a cleansing of the earth's population. The next quote, which is again written by the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, explains how he's going to do this. He says, You who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the people that we just read about, he says they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth, it's not going to take him very long to clean up the mess of today's world. Well, how's God's kingdom then going to take care of all the food shortages and the social inequalities that plague this world? Well, another of the Old Testament prophets, the man Micah, he also speaks of the last days in chapter 4 of his prophecy. He tells of the righteous laws of God going out through the entire world from Jerusalem and the Lord Jesus Christ judging the nations and bringing peace. And then he adds that every man shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the deserts are going to be healed to become fertile lands, and he says that they will plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. So in God's kingdom, we're going to be living in an agricultural society. People will grow their own crops and enjoy the outdoors once more. Instead of investing time and resources into weapons development, people are going to farm their own produce. The problems of economic instability and social inequality will no longer be relevant. But then there's the coronavirus pandemic. How's, going to ma how's God going to manage health crises in the future? Well, we mentioned earlier that there's going to be a temple of worship to be built in Jerusalem, a place where all the nations will come to worship God. And another of the Old Testament prophets, the prophet Ezekiel, describes a river near that temple with rows of fruit trees lining at either side that's got, that are going to exhibit healing properties for people in need. In Ezekiel chapter 47 and verse 12, you'll notice there the, the top quote on the slide, that the leaves of these trees are for medicine. Sick people will be able to go up to the temple in Jerusalem and be healed just by touching these leaves. You know, when Jesus Christ was on earth 2,000 years ago, he healed many sick people. And the prophet Isaiah tells us that the lame are going to be able to walk in the kingdom. That those who are dumb are going to be healed so that they can sing. So many people are going to be healed in the kingdom of God. We won't have coronavirus lockdowns. We're not going to need things like open heart surgery. In fact, life expectancy is going to be increased so much so that someone who dies at 100 years old will be called just a child. Well, there's so much more that we could look at and that could be said about the coming kingdom of God. We could look at how the movement of world nations today fall directly into line with Bible prophecy. We could share other Bible prophecies that indicate how very close we are to the time when Jesus Christ will return. But as we come to a close this evening, I'd like to direct your attention towards a song that was written about God's kingdom to come. 
This song is recorded in the Old Testament book of the Psalms, in Psalm 72. This psalm is all about God's kingdom. And you might like to just jot it down so that later on you can open it and read carefully through it and just imagine living at such a time. The psalm was written by King David, who, as you you may recall, was one of the most famous kings in Israel. And I'm just going to take a few highlights now. The psalm opens talking about Jesus Christ as king over the entire world. And in verses 1 to 3, we read, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. So amid this poetry, we can see that a righteous king is going to judge the whole world by God's righteous, fair and merciful principles. The king will care for everybody, whether rich or poor. Many lands are going to experience peace because of the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, we read that he will judge the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor. This king will look after the disadvantaged in society, whether it's because of financial circumstances or health problems. Do we realise just how good this is? What this is saying is that the king and his government are going to be able to overcome the socio-economic divides that governments of the 21st century continue to struggle with each and every year. This king's also going to destroy the oppressors of the world. In verse 5, we read that he shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon, so they shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. The kingdom's going to last forever, as long as the sun and the moon. And the king will be respected. There'll be a healthy fear of him. It'll be quite unlike tuning into Parliament today where you hear slander and quarrelling levelled against the government. In verse 11 of the psalm, we read that all kings will fall down before him and all nations are going to serve him. This is going to be a worldwide empire encompassing every nation on earth. But then look at the character of this king in verses 12 to 14. He shall deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him that has no helper. He shall spare the poor and the needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. This king cares about the people that nobody else cares about. He's going to be the saviour for those who have no one to help them. And each of these people's lives are incredibly important to this king. This is the sort of king that our world needs. In verse 15, the world will appreciate him so much that they're going to bring gifts to the king because they love him. And they'll pray for his honour and the welfare of his kingdom. And then verse 16 tells us, what God is going to do to the actual earth. There will be a handful of corn in the, top, in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, which is a very lush area of the world back in Bible times. And they of the city shall flourish like the, like the grass of the earth. As we saw a few minutes ago, there will be incredible fertility of the land. Corn doesn't grow on mountaintops. So if you've got food growing up on the hilltops, imagine the, the fertility and the produce that will come from the valleys. There won't be any food crises or shortages in God's kingdom. And then the final verses of the psalm show the way in which God will be known as the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ the King, will be worshipped and honoured by everyone who lives in his kingdom.
And so this, this song concludes with the whole world happy and serving the God of Israel. So do you think Christ's return holds the solution for this troubled world? Well, I think from the picture painted tonight, there's little doubt that it does. Christ's return will bring a time of peace, of joy, of happiness like never before. But the question that you may be asking is, is it all true? Will God's kingdom really come? Will this famed person, Jesus Christ, whose name and teachings have influenced the course of history for the last two millennia, will he actually return? Is it all true? All the prophecies that we spoke of tonight, are they all true? Well, something that is true of life is that big rewards come at a big cost. Nobody ever got anywhere by doing nothing. And the reward in front of you is eternal life in a transformed earth. And so the question for you and for me is simply, do we want to invest the time, the commitment to learning why the Bible claims to be the word of God? to examine the proofs that it gives and to learn why it is that you can trust a book that was written 2,000 years ago. Well, there's one final passage that I'd like to place before you tonight. It paints a beautiful picture. It speaks of a time beyond the fears of today and beyond the grief of tomorrow. It's a well-known passage of scripture because of the comfort that it brings when faced with the problems of life. And as we read this final passage tonight, I invite you to consider whether this is for you, whether you would like the solution that God brings for our troubled world. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Thank you.